Turn with me now, if you would, to the book of Acts. We are in a series on the book of Acts, moving right through uh, the book. That's what we do here at Hope. We do a continual uh, passage after passage, chapter after chapter, exposition of books of the Bible, either, if not verse by verse, then context by context. That's what we'll do today. And we are in um, the 18th chapter, and we're starting at verse 1 where Paul is leaving Athens and going to Corinth. Hear now the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 18, verses 1 to 17, page 1179, if you're using the blue church Bibles. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, the native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. For now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, See to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, it's, uh, the, the, the passage has a lot in it uh, this morning in terms of of history, and there are many interesting cultural pieces. This morning we want to draw out uh, three truths from the text that have uh, a, a relevance to us today that I, I think we must not miss. Uh, this morning we're going to talk about discipleship, uh, the power of the word, and how the good news from that word works. Those are the three things we're going to look at, at this morning. Uh, discipleship, the word, and the good news from that word. Specifically, we're going to look at discipleship and the fact that it is not a thing, it's a life. 
But discipleship isn't a thing, it's a life. Number two, the word isn't merely a message, but a power. And finally, the good news is an indicative before it's an imperative. Uh, Those of you who've been around here at Hope for any mention of time, uh, you'll know exactly where we're going with that. Uh, But let's look first uh, at discipleship. It isn't a thing, it's a life. Now, the passage is um, toward the end of what many historians refer to as the end of Paul's second missionary journey. I like a different phrase. I prefer Paul's second church planting tour. Paul's second church planting tour. Because make no mistake, that's Paul's mission. Uh, This is his method uh, of his mission, to go from one strategic town to the next, pushing out the frontiers uh, and the boundaries of the church as he goes, and he does this in a very orderly way. You might even say his method has a, a covenantal priority to it. He, he goes first, as you've heard by now, immediately to the local Jewish synagogue to go to traditionally God's covenant people first, the place of worship there for God's people, the synagogue, and preaches from the Old Testament uh, the, 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 the Christ is there in the Old Testament. And then secondly, that Christ there is the fulfillment of the Old Testament until he invariably gets kicked out. City after city that he goes to. He has a little time in the synagogue and ultimately, though, they, they push him outwards. So that whenever Paul sees a conversion, either first from the Jews or secondarily from the Gentiles, when he goes out of the synagogue and then preaches in the marketplace or wherever. Then he oversees the baptisms of those converts and then organizes them into a church before going somewhere else. Or as he does sometimes, he will leave some of his co-workers behind to start that church. We see in this very text that Silas and Timothy are rejoining Paul after having been left behind previously to start the church planting mission all over again. Now, this passage opens with the fact that Paul arrives in Corinth, and when he does, he meets a husband and a wife, uh, Priscilla and Aquila, wife and husband, Christians and Christian business owners who have recently also, like Paul, moved into town. And Priscilla and Aquila, you're going to hear more about them next week when, uh, when, when Christopher uh, brings the word to you. Uh, they have a very successful tent-making business. Very successful tent-making business. Tents in those days, by the way, weren't for camping or for outdoor church events the way we might use them or for a wedding. They were more like awnings. They were to stretch over the windows. Uh, Of course, not glass windows, but just open windows uh, in their buildings to to extend that that place of of coolness over windows and doorways. And so here you have uh, Paul working with Priscilla Aquila, apparently earlier in Paul's life, before he even became a rabbi. This was a trade that he he had learned. And uh, Priscilla and Aquila's business had thrived in Rome. It had done very well. But the Roman emperor had, uh, had, uh, had a rule that allowed Jews there in, Jerusalem, uh, in uh, Rome excuse me, uh, freedom of worship, but not freedom to meet. 
Uh, some countries we're seeing this more and more. We'll allow you the freedom to worship, but we don't want you gathering for any other purpose. We don't want you in the marketplace of ideas. So that the, the Jews in Rome, they, they were free to worship as they would do on the Sabbath. They could do all the things that the Bible commanded them to do in worship, but they were not allowed to have meetings outside of worship. But then something happened, and that is that Christians began to spread in Rome. It seems that Christianity, even before Paul writes his letter to the Romans, that Christianity started to spread there. And Priscilla and Aquila have become believers. And uh, that, that creates tension within the synagogue, and, and, and not just the synagogue to reason there, but it starts these private meetings, and these Christians won't go away, and they, the, 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 the Jews in Rome feel like the message is being changed, and who is this Jesus? And so what the leaders do is they seek justice with the magistrate. And when it goes to the magistrate, the magistrates want nothing to do with this. And so Claudius orders not just the Christians, the Christian Jews, if you will, but all the Jews. Uh, it's, it's, like, it's like in your house when kids are fighting. We're not taking the time here to figure out who started it. I want you all out, right? That's what Claudius wants. I want the whole problem to leave. And, uh, <clears throat> and so Priscilla and Aquila then find themselves, they go to Corinth. We'll explain why that's such a good place to go to uh, in, in a moment. But here they, they share some things with Paul. They share Christ in common, uh, their faith, obviously. They share their vocation uh, together, tent making. Again, this was in Paul's past that he was a tent maker. And, and now they're sharing discipleship together. And you can just see, you can imagine uh, Paul and Priscilla and Aquila sewing these pieces of, of canvas or cloth together uh, so that they, this business can start and that this business can be of a support to the mission that they often also have uh, and so that some of the, 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 the profit they make can go to the starting of the church. So they're, they're talking and they're working together and they're serving together. And this is instructive for us as a church. This is instructive for Hope Presbyterian Church. You know, I think that when, when some of us talk about discipleship, what we think of is a church pairing people up together. Maybe the church provides you a book or a workbook or you journal together and over copious amounts of coffee or tea, uh, caffeine products, we make it a thing. So discipleship is a thing, a measurable thing. So if you're doing less than that, less than that program, it's not a good thing, and then you're not a good church. And then if everyone is doing discipleship just like that, then it is a great thing, and it's almost a guarantee that revival will break out. Now, there is nothing wrong with doing discipleship as I've just described. I've done it. I'll probably do it again. It's been done with me. It's been valuable to me. I would do it again. And yet, when you make it a thing, it starts to become programmatic with set materials, with set ways of doing it, with set leaders. And over time, sometimes programs fade. They fade for want of good leaders. So if a leader moves on somewhere else, 
and then there is no leader. Suddenly, we're not doing discipleship anymore. And then suddenly, when people aren't discipled, uh, things start to spin downward. You've been probably, you've visited those churches where someone says, yeah, this church used to be growing. We had a great discipleship program. I don't know what happened, but we're just not doing it anymore. But is that what we really see in Scripture? Is that what we see in Scripture? The fact is that discipleship can come in so many ways. I've been in churches where discipleship is something y'all do, but on Sunday and for what the pastors do, we don't need that. So, so that this, we're doing church today and then y'all have to find another time in your place, lives, daily time to get where you can go do discipleship. Two different categories. But is that what the scriptures say? No, worship, you're, you're in discipleship right now. You're in worship, but you're also in discipleship to the degree that you're sitting under the word and you're hearing the word preached and and you're growing in your faith. You're being discipled right now. But it can happen in so many other ways. Discipleship can and should happen, for instance, in your parenting. Uh, Discipleship can happen in your school friendships, no matter what level of school you're at. It can happen in coffee shop with friends. Yes, it can happen like it does here over working together in making tents. It can happen uh, among the people that put the Lord's Supper together today in the kitchen. Discipleship can happen there. It can happen in your small groups together. It can happen among close friends to the degree that it happens by using God's word. That's discipleship. So what we're saying is, biblically speaking, discipleship is not this separate and distinct thing that's way over there that has to be done a certain way where books and times and certain things are are, are used, like it happens maybe at a specific Wednesday night Bible study. It should happen throughout the Christian life all of the time. All of the time. Because discipleship isn't a thing, it's all of life. So that I pray that my, my kids will say that our family meals together over the years grew us, discipled us together, and they were a great part of their being discipled, and they actually saw their parents being discipled as well, just as they get discipled in youth group, just as they get discipled uh, earlier today in Sunday school. But it has to include wisdom from the Word of God has to include wisdom from the Word of God. That's what makes one a discipler or one being discipled. Are you being discipled by the Word of God or are you discipling using the Word of God so that when Jesus met up with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, Jesus used the Bible. Jesus took them through the Psalms. He took them through the prophets. He took them through the historical books and said, have you not heard about me? Here's where it was written about me. He's discipling the disciples. And and so the question to ask yourself is, are you being discipled? Is that happening? Is it is it is it just Sunday morning because that's good, that's a good starting point. But is it an organic, regular part of your life? These are the the terms that we sometimes use uh, these days, right? Is it organic and is it sustainable? 
And I think that's appropriate to use that uh, in, in this context too. Is it, is it a part of what you do? Is the discipleship you're doing and, and having, is it sustainable so that, or, or, or do you feel like, no, the only reason, only way I can be discipled is if a PhD does it for me and that I have to have a PhD to do it for somebody else. That's not sustainable. That's not organic. That's not going to just pop up. Is it organic? Is it sustainable? Are you being discipled? Are you discipling someone else? Number two, the word isn't merely a message, but a power. The word isn't merely a message, but a power. Eckhart Schnabel, perhaps the, the, the foremost uh, uh, interpreter of the book of Acts today, says that the term word, the word in the passage word, of course, famous word logos in verse five, that Paul was occupied with the word. <clears throat> that phrase stands for the proclamation of the good news about Jesus. So that, so that when, when it says there that Paul was occupied with the word, Paul was bearing witness. Paul was testifying to the Jews that the Christ, that's the Greek word for Messiah, was Jesus. And this is happening in Corinth. And that's important. That Paul would do this, that this was happening, that Paul was, was, was convicting people of this fact in Corinth. You know, many uh, evangelicals today view the future of the church with fear and pessimism as they see our culture. Yes, here, perhaps in the United States, but around the world too. They, uh, they, they, they believe, Christians believe, that the, the world is just spiraling into greater depths of depravity. And there certainly are indicators of this. Uh, This last week is just an example in Toronto, up uh, north of the border. Uh, There's an effort by doctors to uh, come up with new procedures to do euthanasia of children without parental consent. You just read about that and thought, even 10 years ago, I can't imagine anybody thinking about doing that. But we're in a place in our culture where people who look like you and I are thinking about doing just that. And so Christians have come to the point where they, this is happening like sort of a drip, drip, drip all the time. Uh, and, and they've come to the point where they're wondering if the culture is too wicked for the gospel. And uh, famously, a book last year, uh, Rod, Rod Dreher's book, uh, some of you heard of it, The Benedict Option, is in a sense about this very thing. Should Christians gather together uh, and, and, and kind of create our own culture that can make, we used the word sustainable before, can, that can make the gospel a sustainable message because at least we are not challenged uh, in, the, in the same way. And uh, <clears throat> that way we can hold on to our truths that we have long confessed as Christians. And if you read the book, he does give you example after example after example of cultural shifts, things that have been in the news that you've long forgotten. But when you line them all up, you go, yeah, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Maybe the world is too wicked for Jesus. And uh, in a world where there is no absolute truth uh, held on to anymore. You have your truth, I have mine. A culture that thinks that any way that is exclusive, that Jesus is the exclusive way to know God and uh, to have life ever, ever after, by definition is oppressive. It's an oppressive truth claim if you have the only way. And in a truth where very few behaviors that are left could, could, could be thought of as unholy, we have a message that's exclusive, 
where we talk about things like holiness and where we say there's something that's absolutely true, that the gospel is absolutely true for everybody in all places, in every culture, at all times. How can, how can Christianity then fit into a world that is so diametrically opposed? This passage shows us that the gospel can flourish in a culture that many would define as wicked. The gospel can flourish. That in a culture that hasn't just turned a blind eye to sin, but has embraced sin, that the gospel can actually superabound. Two things will be known about Corinth as you read through the New Testament. One Of all the churches that Paul planted, this one grew the fastest. And number two, that throughout the church's life in Corinth, they always had to struggle with the culture around it. The culture was always trying to creep in. And so those two things were true at the same time. Grew the fastest, but struggled with the culture all the time. Those two things were were true together about the church in Corinth. So let's look at Corinth for a minute so that we can then look back at the culture we're, we're in for a moment and see the power of the word at work. Now, in one sense, Corinth is like London, like present-day London. It's like London in that 150 years earlier, 150 years then before Paul has visited Corinth with Priscilla and Aquila, 150 years earlier, the Roman Empire had grown in such power and the one outpost... Uh, in the Greek world to fight against the Roman power was Corinth. Was Corinth. They were the resistance front against growing Rome. And they fought back furiously. In fact, they fought back, back so seriously that the Roman Senate decreed that the city of Corinth must be destroyed. And so uh, it's sort of like an ancient version of the Blitz, uh, except... Uh, this was far worse. You know, you see those pictures. They, they, they have those pictures of uh, you know, planes flying over, over uh, London in the, in the 40s, and you see the devastation in certain places, even worse in other places, uh, of course, in, in, in Europe because of allied forces. But just looking very... Corinth was worse. Corinth was worse. In fact, it was so successfully destroyed by the Romans that it remained deserted for a century deserted for a century. But in 44 BC, Julius Caesar refounded the city as a Roman colony, and in a moment we'll see why. And to make this a city again, of course, he had to populate it. And so here's where where Corinth maybe is sort of like uh, Sydney, Australia. Uh, He populated it with 3,000 freed slaves and criminals, as well as army veterans. You know, you can't just have criminals. They might get out of line. So we'll put army veterans with them and uh, just take care of them, you know, uh, make sure that nothing too bad happens. And the city was built quickly. It grew quickly and, and it became extremely wealthy, mostly because of geography, mostly because of geography. The city is essentially built on land that is a very tiny four-mile-wide wide isthmus in the middle of Greece and Sometimes I do this. There's a map in the back of your bulletin, page 16. And uh, if you look at that picture on the far left, this blue area here, this is the part of Greece that we're talking about. <clears throat> and uh, you see there's a sort of blue blob. Uh, 
if your eyes are uh, bad as mine or worse. There's sort of a blue blob here, and then there's a little water there, and then there's a blue blob just above it. And it's that little itty-bitty four-mile-wide thing there that connects the lower blue blob to the upper blue blob that is Corinth. That's Corinth, this little spit of land uh, binding the north to the south of Greece. And that made it so that the city could make money by, uh, by, by people traveling north to south and east to west. Anybody going north to south, all of the, to put it in our words, all, all of the interstate highways had to go through that little four-mile section to go north to south. But also east to west, because uh, Corinth then had two, because it looked like this, it had two seaports, one on each side. And so to go east to west or vice versa, you could, uh, you'd have a situation where you could pull your boat in and they had a system where they had all these men ready to carry your boat the four miles to the other port so that you didn't have to go all the way around Greece. Now, there is, by the way, a canal there, sort of like the Panama Canal. There's a, there's a, there's a man-made canal there that, so you can just pull your ship right through. But in those, those days, that's how you did that. And uh, like a port city, like any port city, like New York City. I don't know if you've ever been to New York City. I, I lived there for 15 years. On Fleet Week, everything goes crazy. Everything goes crazy. And you have commercial sailors and naval sailors in and out, and all of the business that typically arise to meet the ve- every desire that a sailor might have when a sailor's on leave. Right? And again, and again, Corinth is like New York in the, the money that's there. The money the tolls, the concentration of trade because it's this port city, the currency transfers that happen. All of this made Corinth like Wall Street. In fact, if you, if you don't see the connections between Corinth and New York, New York City, you're likely a tourist in these parts because it, it's just everywhere in the passage as you, as you read about Corinth. Because in the 100 years, from the time of Julius Caesar restarted to the time that Paul arrives, Corinth explodes from nothing into one of the biggest cities of the world. And here again is why Corinth is very American and New York-like, in that it has no aristocracy. Remember, there's nobody's from Corinth because it was deserted for 100 years. So no one goes to Corinth to go home. It has no traditions, no aristocracy, no native population. As a result, it grew in a sort of unplanned, wild, diverse way because all of the commerce there makes it multi-ethnic and, 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 and a, a city built on, on money. And, and then further, the only people who come to Corinth stay, like in New York, stay for one thing. You stay to become successful. You stay there to make money. But finally, finally, Corinth has the flavor of Las Vegas. Maybe better said, if you've ever been there, Corinth feels like Amsterdam because it was notorious for every kind of immorality that you can possibly imagine. The nerve center of Corinth, it's still there today, was the massive temple to Aphrodite, or as it would be called later, the massive temple to Venus, the goddess of love. But of course, people weren't going to the temple of Aphrodite to feel love. They were going there for lust and sexuality. In fact, the place was, the building was one of the wonders of the world at that time. And the Greek geographer and historian Strabo said that at its peak, the temple employed 
1,000 male and female prostitutes. This is how, this is how a, a city like that uh, stays, stays cash rich. Uh, if you want to start a, a business in Corinth, that's all great and good, but there's a tax for that. Oh, you can't pay the tax or you need the money to start your business and you can't pay the, the entry tax to start a business in Corinth? Who can you give us to work at the temple of Aphrodite? Do you have a daughter? Do you have a son? Do you have a slave that you could give to us? So, the, so at its peak, there are all, it's, the, the temple prostitution is, is, is rife there. And so you have a culture that is success-oriented, sex-obsessed. And does it remind you of any culture that you can think of in the world these days? And the gospel flourished. The gospel flourished. It's here in Corinth that Paul has amazing missional success. In fact, Paul will stay here for the next year and a half from the fall of AD 50 to the spring of AD 52. Now, we're not saying, by the way, that this was easy for Paul to do. It was not easy. By saying the word has a power to it, we're pointing out that the word has also a power to divide. Power to divide. Remember our series in the parables from a year and a half ago or so. That series showed that over and over again that Jesus was always giving his followers pictures of the kingdom of God and trying to give them a picture of the kingdom of God to say, the kingdom of God, here's how it's different from the kingdom of this world. And they're different. And over and over again, Jesus used parables to begin to show us through these pictures, these parables of the kingdom to show that there's a division between the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the tares, the gospel from religion, death from life. And as Jesus speaks these parables, it begins to happen. Some kicked him out of the synagogue and some followed Jesus and became disciples. A division starts to happen. There's a power. When, it, when We say this often at Hope. When the Bible says that the word does not come back void, it doesn't mean that it always the word goes out and everyone believes. It just means that it won't go out neutral. Some believe, some don't. Some believe and some don't. And it continues to happen here in Corinth when, verse 5, Paul preaches that Christ, that the Christ, the Messiah, was Jesus. That starts to divide. That only by the cross of Jesus Christ can you be saved. And by saying that Jesus is the Christ, that is, the again, the Greek word for Messiah, he doesn't mean merely a good man. He doesn't mean merely a moral example, but the one who had to provide a blood atonement, penal substitutionary atonement by dying in our place. And friends, to this day, That is a message that is a stumbling block for many people. In fact, here, Paul does something that reminds you, if if, if you read read your Old Testament recently or do, it should remind you of Ezekiel 33. And Jesus counseling his apostles. Paul, you see there, he shakes out his garments. 
And it's a, it's, a, it's a visual, sermonic illustration. He was doing what the prophets did when the hard-hearted who refused to hear the law of God decided to walk away and the prophet was told to shake out his garments. It was to symbolize that you don't want even a speck of contamination of that unbelief, of that rejection of God upon you. Because the divide is happening. A divide is happening. The only divide that the Bible actually cares about are not language divides, not racial divides, not gender divides, not nation divides. It's belief and unbelief. It's the only only difference the Bible really cares about. So that when Paul says, your blood be on your own heads, I'm innocent from now on, I'm going to the Gentiles, he's repeating what Ezekiel said. This message is really ultimately for everybody. I'm starting with you. But it's for the Gentiles too, because there is no dividing line in the gospel between Jew and Gentile. It is, do you trust in Christ or do you not? And God tells Ezekiel that he'd be counted as innocent as God's messenger of this news as the watchman who tells those in a city that they're about to be attacked and destroyed. And here is Paul in the temple telling Jews, I am that watchman. And I will be innocent because I have explained it to you. I have reasoned with you. Week after week, I've come here and I've told you who the Messiah is. I've given you proof of who the Messiah is. It is Jesus, the Christ is Jesus, and you will not believe. As Jesus said in Matthew 7, I have finished casting my pearls before swine. I am on my way. So that, so that this is nothing less than a formal judicial judgment of those in the synagogue in Corinth. And Paul, by the way, would never darken the door of the synagogue in Corinth again. This was not easy. You see in the letter to the Romans, Paul grieving that his brothers and sisters in the covenant people do not believe in Christ. Paul says he wept over this, over people's refusal of the free gift of God's grace. But I love this. Did you see this? I love this. He points to the fact that God is not done with the Jews or anybody in shaking his clothes off. Because basically, where does Paul move in? Next door. Next door. I don't know if you've ever had a conflict with maybe a neighbor. And you feel like in the height of that conflict with a neighbor, could be a roommate, could be somebody, uh, you know, it could be a family member. When you're in the midst of that conflict, you just, you want to be away from it. You want to move away. So what does Paul do in his conflict with the Jews? He sets up shop right next door. That's where he goes. And get the picture here. More and more, with each passing week, on each successive Sabbath, people are heading, the Jews are heading as they do, in the direction of the synagogue, but now there are two doorways. There's the old door, the door that they've always used, and through that door, you can hear about Christ, you can hear about Messiah, but you can hear about the Messiah rejected and defamed. And then through the other door, you can hear about Jesus as Israel's Messiah and crucified and risen and as the exalted Lord of the universe. And those two doors, more and more, you see a sort of 
confident pluralism in the, in the spreading of the gospel because one of the first or earliest converts wasn't just anyone, but Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue who believed. I think about how awkward that must have been. The first Sunday that somebody saw Crispus, their synagogue leader, walking, and he goes through. He went through that door. He went through that, that bad guy Paul's door instead of going into the, into the synagogue because he believed. And his family believed. And they were baptized. And the gospel grew in this place that was so, so known for, for filth and depravity that it, uh, Corinth became a verb. That person's a Corinthianizer. Could have been in any city in the Greco-Roman world. Anyone would know what that meant. A Corinthianizer. And yet the gospel flourished there. So that rather than a Benedict option, we have the gospel option. Where God keeps his word, God is building his church. The gates of hell will not uh, uh, prevail against it. Neither will Corinth. And the church will grow and the church can flourish in a place like Corinth or in Princeton or in Trenton or in New York or you name it. Last point. The good news is an imperative indicative before it is an imperative Again, if you've been around Hope any length of time, uh, we bring this up maybe twice a year because it's so important. Uh, this is important and fascinating, but it, and it's relevant too. I was talking to Pastor Jonathan uh, this week, Pastor Jonathan, who uh, is, the, is the church planter, the pastor of King's Cross, a, a church that we helped to plant this year. Uh, talking to him on Friday, a couple of hours afterward, I visited the Heslips on the birth of their second child. And what you see in ministry when the Lord builds and increases his church is kind of the same thing that you see when the Lord uh, builds and grows and increases your family. You see blessing and exhaustion at the same time. Blessing and exhaustion. Some, something great has happened. Uh, King's Cross, birth of a new church. But if you've gone over there to, to visit King's Cross, and I hope that you do to help out, do so because they're exhausted, because they're doing everything. A few people doing everything. And there's change going on. And you feel depleted when a child arrives and everything in the household changes. And the church likewise must find a, a new strength, a new stability, just as you're hoping when you have a child and a new, uh, that's just arrived in the house, that you'll at some point get some sleep and get to a new place of stability. But it's not easy. And apparently... Apparently, Paul was feeling exactly the same thing. It is so interesting to see right next to each other with no distance between the verses that that God is growing this church. Many, that word many there, you see it over, that word many, over and over again through the book of Acts, that many believed, but apparently Paul was depleted by this. Janice read from us earlier, Paul is reminding the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians uh, from our scripture reading in chapters 1 and verse 2. Paul says, I didn't come to you with wise or persuasive words. I came to you with fear, trembling. You could feel the exhaustion, fear and, and, and trembling and weakness, he says. So that on the heels of many being added to the church, Paul is lagging. 
His spirits begin to fall a bit so that the Lord here, as he did with the apostle on the Damascus road, speaks to him. Now, I'm not big on red letter Bibles. If you want to know why, I'll tell you later. But if you have one, they are correct to put uh, red letters in verse 9 because Paul recognizes the voice of Jesus. And Jesus gives Paul a command. And here it is, mortify fear. Mortify fear. This is an imperative. Fear not. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. This is one of the commands that you hear over and over again in the Old Testament and over and over again in the New Testament. Fear not, because a falling spirit is when, uh, happens when you forget or you suppress the truth that God is sovereign over both your life and his church. Did you hear that? Fear and anxiety is something that does happen and will happen whenever you forget that God is sovereign over both your life and his church. It's what Pastor Jonathan and I were reminding each other, that God is sovereign. You know, uh, Pastor Jonathan and I were men, and we're not saying, we never say to each other, hey, how's the fear thing going? (laughs) Men don't do that. We say, how's that sovereign God doing? (laughs) Right? But we are talking about fear, and we know it. We just don't want to talk about it. But that's what we're saying. We're reminding each other, fear not. Fear not. And by the way, this command has the flavor of repentance to it. The flavor of repentance to it. If you have the tendency toward fear, there is often the sense, I want to say this carefully now, the tendency toward fear and anxiety, there's often the sense that this is a willful way of sinning. I know it doesn't feel that way. Very often it can be a willful way of sinning. Sin because we're wringing our hands saying, God, you should be doing this. Oh, God, you should be doing that. But you're not, or you're essentially saying, God, if I were on the throne, I'd do this a lot better than you would. I would have taken care of this situation already. So get moving so I don't have to worry about this anymore. Now, it sounds all Christian-y and good. And, you know, like we're... Worry looks pious, can also look sinful. Also looks sinful. Because why does the Lord, why does Jesus tell Paul to fear not? For I am with you always. For I am with you always. And this is where the ordering is important. Whenever we talk about the indicative first and then the imperative, usually that's how the Bible does it. You look, think about the Ten Commandments. It doesn't say do it, do number one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And then if you do that, I will be the Lord your God who delivers you out of Egypt. No, it's the indicative first, right? I am the Lord your God who, who brought you out of Egypt. And since I'm that kind of guy, and since I prove that I, I, I love you, and I'm that kind of God, and I'm a trustworthy God, and I have foreloved you before you are about to mess up the Ten Commands I'm about to give you, do the Ten Commands I'm about to give you. The indicative first, then the imperative. Now, I grant you that in the passage, Jesus does it backwards. But he, but he gets it right because he gives the reason you can fear not 
And that's how he, he, he ends it. Sinclair Ferguson calls this the gospel grammar, the indicative and the imperative. So that just as you can't speak a language unless you know its grammar and vocabulary, you can't do Christianity unless you can speak gospel, unless you know gospel grammar of the indicative and the imperative. So what is the gospel grammar? The indicative, by the indicative we mean what God has done, comes before the imperative, what you must now do. And again, I know fear not comes first in the sentence. It does. But it doesn't say, Jesus doesn't say, first fear not, and then if you achieve a fearless life, I will then be with you, and I will never leave you. No, it's first fear not, uh, and, 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 and he says that, because I am, I am already with you always. Don't you remember, Paul, I'm the one who's with you always. I am never going to leave you. I'm never going to. So if you feel weak, remember, I'm the God who's always with you. So don't have any fear about it. You will be okay. So that not fearing is the gift of knowing Jesus, not a rule by which Jesus is known. You see that? That makes the gospel grace. Which is why the, we, we, we sometimes talk about the distinction between law and gospel. Law does not get you grace. It's when you've received grace because you're a lawbreaker that you see the law differently and you want to obey God. Don't get those things backward. The good news of the gospel is that Christ has died and given his life for you. So if you want to live without fear, without fear of sin, without fear of death, trust in Jesus. Give him your life today if you have not. And then he will always remind you, even at your lowest point, I am always with you. Let's pray. Our God, we're thankful for the gospel. We're thankful for its good news. We're thankful for its power to save. Uh, and that we need not fear this world because all of the fear that we have before you is no longer a worry about destruction. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So that, so, so that the, the, the fear that, that, that we have of you, Lord, is simply fear of your power, your goodness, your, 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 your might, your, your, your sovereignty over the world, your omnipresence and your uh, uniqueness in this world. Your, the, the word, a, 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 a mighty awe of your, of your word and what it does and how it's mighty to save and how good it is all the time. So that as we go out into the world this week, and there will be things that will shake us up that we will fear not and that will follow you. Know that your word has power and know that even in a world as depraved as this world sometimes is because it's only filled with sinners, including us, that we know that you're even mighty to save sinners like us. In Jesus' name, amen.